And I think um, it's also about trauma, you know, and those social ills we're talking about, we are not looking at people's trauma. We are just saying, you're an addict, we need to enforce that out of you. Or you're mentally ill, we need to institutionalize you or get you your meds. But that is not a relational model, which is why I believe the government model for addressing homelessness in the United States is flat not working. We're talking religion and politics on the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? Challenging the mindset of the partisan evangelical church and asking the question, is God really a conservative Republican? And does God require his followers to be? What knucklehead, mush for brains, evangelical leaders are trying to, uh, to overthrow Trump? What You've got to ask yourself, it's a special kind of dumb that is oppositional to Trump and calling yourself a Christian. Podcasting worldwide on the NPE network at npepodcast.com. That's why we've got to pray, because they think we're crazy, but we're actually the same ones. This is the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast with the Nonpartisan Evangelical himself, your host, Paul Swearingen. All right, this is Paul Swearingen. Glad you're with us on this Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast. And today we take on the issue of homelessness and the homeless. It's a, it's a topic that is on everybody's mind, it seems, uh, some ways these days. And particularly in the, in the Fresno mayoral race, uh, the candidate that ultimately won uh, would always say the number one issue was homelessness. I always sort of question whether that was true or not, but it is an issue we talk about a lot and one of the things we like to do on the Nonpartisan Evangelical is talk to people who actually know the subject, can put skin on it, give us humanity around it. And so we've found the, the perfect guest to talk about homelessness today. Adrian Hillman is with us. She's the founder of Salt and Light Ministries, which is uh, based in Tulare, California, which is just south of where I live in Fresno, a ministry to the homeless and dealing with homeless issues. And so we're aw- awesome to be able to talk Adrian, today, thanks for joining us as we do good social isolation and do this online, Adrian. Uh, thanks for having me. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you great. Uh, so how's your family doing in, in hanging out mostly at home still, or how's things working at your place? Yeah, we are hanging out at home. Um, I uh, had yeah, I've had several meetings on you know Zoom and Google Hangouts, that kind of thing, virtual meetings, and only a few interruptions in my office with my son's uh, <laughs> to ask if they can go play uh, the PlayStation or do they really have to clean out the litter box? You know, that kind of stuff. All right. Good stuff. Well, we're all sort of learning a little bit of a, of a new norm here, but let, let's talk about homelessness. And first, I guess, tell us about Salt and Light Ministries and, and what do you guys do to minister into the area of homelessness? So um, our, our full name, our corporate name is um, Salt and Light Works. Um, there actually is a Salt and Light Ministries down south. So Okay, let me make sure I get that right. So it's Salt and Light oh, Works. Okay. Salt and Light Works, which is okay. We, um, yeah, we looked at lots of different ways to call ourselves Salt and Light. That was a name that kind of came to me um, through a lot of prayer. And then when I wanted to put, you know, put that to use, uh, a lot of other people clearly like that name as well. So we had to make sure that we differentiate ourselves from other ministries. But I mean, I definitely want to, I, it's not that I don't uh, consider ourselves a ministry. We certainly are um, faith-based um, and uh, 
Christ inspired. And so what we're doing at Salt Light Works, so our vision at Salt Light Works is to um, empower communities into a lifestyle of service with the homeless. And um, that is, you know, that takes a lot of different shapes, but the, our main how that we want to do that. So the project we're working on right now is Salt and Light Village. And um, that village is a master planned community uh, with micro homes, park homes, um, micro enterprises. So opportunities for dignified income and then wraparound um, supportive services in, in a permanent housing um, setting. So there's always questions about, you know, so you so it's a tiny home village. It's like, well, really it's a village that has tiny homes in it, but it's really a community. So it's different. Um, you know, a tiny home village it typically is more just a housing project. And while those serve a, a, a purpose, it's a different purpose. You know, we believe that the, um, the greatest cause of homelessness is the profound catastrophic loss of family. And so we believe that when we create community, we create that, we recreate that family that we, we believe provides the healing um, that it takes for a person to um, get up off the streets and stay off the streets. So are you providing services for people then? And, and I guess, where are you on the project right now? So we are at the project at the point of the project that we are securing property in Tulare County. And so uh, we have site plans drawn and ready to go um, to approach uh, the group of folks who have this piece of property and get that secured. Um, should we do that? Are you running into some NIMBY on that? Some not in my backyard? Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> the question always is kind of where is it? Where is it? And it's like because people want to have a place where they can start, you know, um, saying we don't want it there either, you know, because really what we've run into is just people don't want it really anywhere, which is disheartening, you know, um, and it's important for us, you know, we, we have a firm understanding of how a village like this works. We're replicating a model out of Austin, Texas that has worked and has worked beautifully, the first of its kind in the United States. And so we are watching how they have done it and how they have been able to engage with their neighbors in their neighborhood and kind of how it's affected the neighbors um, and, you know, what those concerns would be. And so um, we, we feel like we kind of have some insider knowledge at, at how well this works inside, you know, a city or municipality because we've watched how well it worked in Austin, which in Austin, their village is right next door to a subdivision. And, of course, the fears from the folks in the subdivision were that property values would drop and that there would be you know, a lot of crime happening in their neighborhoods, people hanging out on their porches with needles in their arm, that kind of thing. Um, and what is interesting that has ended up happening is that property values have actually gone up 40%. And, and while, to be fair, it's probably because of the rising housing market in Austin, not necessarily because this village is next door, but... But, but it hasn't hurt them. It hasn't dropped either. It hasn't yeah. hurt them. And there have only been seven crimes since they've been in existence for the five years they've been in existence. And those crimes have actually been committed um, against the neighbors who live inside the village. So the formerly homeless. Oh, wow. Who we know, we know by our, by um, the work that we've you know done on the streets is that the formerly, or the homeless folks that are on the streets are really um, most vulnerable among us. You know, they are the most infracted upon um the the most assault cases on their you know they're the most they they have the most assaults per capita on and on and on so um that has translated into that village setting and so uh we know that it will be a good thing for our community but we know that that's hard for people to conceptualize if they haven't seen the village themselves so let's talk about who is who are the homeless you say it's a catastrophic loss of family how does somebody become homeless in your experience as you're working with it and and 
you know, what type of person are we talking about? Because what we always hear is, well, they're mentally ill, they're drug addicts. Um, I, I mean, is that true? Is that what you've run into as you work with homeless folks? There are certainly uh, a large demographic of folks who have who suffer some mental illness. But I mean, if we compare it to the mental illness that uh, Americans in general are suffering, it, the numbers aren't that far off. But the difference is, like, we all have someone in our families, in our lives, um, who are addicted, have mental illness, have drug issues. Um, but the difference between the folks in our families that aren't on the streets and the ones who are on the streets are, is the catastrophic loss of family. So while mental uh, illness and addiction are part of the problem or part of the issue with some of these folks that are on the streets, when you boil it down a little bit further, when you look upstream a little bit, um, the catastrophic loss of family is actually the, the, um, the difference between folks who you know, have these issues and still have homes. So if you look, um, for instance, in different countries, like in Ireland or like the Azor Islands, which is where my family actually comes from, um, those are more village type settings. So what happens when, let's say, mom or dad or a catastrophic loss of family occurs and or someone begins to slip through the cracks? In many cases, and most cases, in fact, you're going to find that family members, mom, mom's mom or dad, grandma's aunts, uncles, neighbors step in and kind of create that buttressing um, that, that doesn't allow that person to fall through the cracks. And so people, it's kind of, I know when I think of community and I think of villages, I think of people holding hands. It's like sometimes your hands get tired, but the next people, they have their hands, you know, held tightly. And, and so they're able to hold those people in place. And so we don't see that in America. We just don't. We are not a village or community-centered culture. We are very much um, a people, as you, I'm sure. We, and, and so interesting, as we're in the midst of this coronavirus pandemic, we're noticing how um, we don't really commune with other people. We go get our toilet paper, right? And we don't worry about who doesn't have toilet paper. We just go get it. Um, and so, um, yeah, I, I actually, it's interesting with this mindset that I really have around community and what I believe is the, it's the true healer, um, that love and community and relationship. I'm watching some of that actually happening and take place while people are being um, socially, or they're socially distancing, and it's been really heartwarming yeah. um, to see. And I'm hoping that through this crisis, we... Um, we, we change, we, we have a mindset shift because really it's the thing I'm constantly trying to teach people about. It's like, listen, if we can step in and hold hands and, and we can help each other and not burn out and have compassion fatigue because one or two of us are doing it all, when all of us are doing it all, when we realize we all belong to each other, you know, we're able to help people settle and heal. So I think that really applies to every social ill, mm -hmm. you know, gang violence, foster children, um, you know, kids who are abused. When, when people turn their backs on these social ills, we see this, we see this catastrophe and it has actually become a catastrophe in the homeless, you know, realm. Um, so. Yeah. I, I heard a, I was talking to a, a gentleman who told me a story. He had married a woman, I believe it was from Nigeria. And I'm sorry if I have that country wrong, but she came here to the States and she began to ask him like, why are these people on the street? And, and he explained homelessness and she's like, well, that would never happen in my country. And, and he explained, well, you know, the drugs and, and all this stuff. And she said, no, that would never happen. Nobody from where I'm from would ever let a family member live on the street. And yeah, so maybe that's something we've lost a little bit in our culture. I think so. I think so. And we justify it. I mean, hey, 
you know, I I have had catastrophic loss inside my own family, and it's not something I'm proud of per se, but it is what it is. And so I do my part to make sure that that catastrophic loss does not lead to um, that trauma doesn't affect my children and my family in the way that it would lead them to possibly become homeless. I'm not going to turn my back on them. I, what happens is trauma is happening to people, and then folks have mental illness as a result of some of that trauma, or, or they're born with some mental illness already, and the family says, I can't do more for you, I'm done, I give up, I can't. And that is, I, in my opinion, that's just not how we love people, but that's really provocative when you're talking to people who, especially people that you know have means and have family members who are living on the streets, and they have written them off. And so there's some discussion around what that looks like. And so I really try to come at it without judgment, the hard thing to do, yeah. but, but catastrophic loss of family is what it is. It doesn't matter whose fault it is, but it is the cause, the root cause of the social ills we're seeing. So if we, if we can, as a, as a community, I, it would be great if we could stop the catastrophic loss of family. Right. But we're not going to stop sin. That's just not, we can try, but that's, you know, once we fix the brokenness of humanity, right, we can just fix it all. <laughs> probably not going to happen. What we can do in the meantime, when people always say, what can I do to help? Create community. You know, and community is not neat and clean. It is not driving in our driveways, opening up our garages and shutting them. It is seeing the guy walking down the street with his shopping cart and stopping and asking if he needs something or, or, or more, you know, that's hard. That's, but I believe this is my personal opinion. Bob Goff said this at one point, and I love Bob Goff so much. He said something to the effect of, you know, living in, in the way of Jesus is, means a life full of interruption. Hmm. Right? And as Americans, we don't like interruption, which no. is why people are really not happy about this social distance. <laughs> I, I like to say, I think it's a, I think it's a great oppor- opportunity for us. Um, is I, I don't know if you have any statistical information on this. It, it, it seems that everybody's talking about homelessness more. We feel like it's more prominent than it has been. Are the numbers going up? And do you have any any insider data for us on that? Yeah, the, the numbers are going up. And I don't have my data right in front of me. I actually believe there's been a little dip in the last year. Um, with uh, and, you know, nationally, the numbers have gone down just a hair. Um, but I think that there has been a, honestly, there's been an uptick, you know, for, for several decades. And I think there are a lot of reasons for that. I mean, housing is, you know, housing is not, uh, cheap, especially in California, especially on the coast, which is where the highest concentration of homeless folks reside. Um, also there's been some things that have happened that have caused, um, this transient population to be more visible um, because they're, you know, the big heads are being moved around and, and pushed out of certain areas. Right. So I think there's a couple reasons why that is. Um, they're, they're more visible at this point. You know, I can, I can say that even in Tulare where I live, you know, there were folks who were living in areas that were a little more concealed and now they've been kind of pushed to the center of the city. And now people are irate because they see them every day. And yeah. then, yeah, I have thoughts about <laughs> <laughs> well <laughs> about seeing people in need, what it does to us. Yeah. You know, it's we just, have responses to that. It's, it's definitely the same story here. And, and we had a huge homeless encampment at, in the south end of town. And the mayor at the time, which happens to be my wife, um, 
you know, had to, they, they were required by law to, to fix it. And, and, and we actually walked through the encampment and it was horrifying. Uh, mm-hmm. What you would see is, you know, urine and feces in jars and the stories, like you say, of assaults of women and children in the encampment. It was, it was a horrible place. And, and so that got broken up and, and they began attempting to put people into housing and had some success of that. But the unintended casualty of that is the homeless moved into more visible places in town. And I think that has really sparked some of this. And so I think it's interesting. I, I want to ask you, you know, you're, you're, uh, you look like just the average suburban soccer mom and, uh, in, in a family there. How did you become a person that would stop and talk to a guy pushing a shopping cart on the side of the road and say, do you need anything? Um, well, I think, I, I do think if I look back at my life before, you know, the world told me who to be, I think that there was a part of me that, you know, did I have a heart for other people? Um, but truly, I got a call, honestly, and it wasn't a call I wanted to take. I think, you know, we've talked offline about this a little bit, just that, um, you know, I had a trajectory planned for my life, you know, as you would plan your own life. That's just, isn't that how it really goes? Um, no, <laughs> but I, uh, so I had gotten kind of a call in church, actually, um, just kind of pretty clear. I felt a word and it was kind of like, you're going to serve the homeless. And I'm like, no, I don't think so. So I told my husband about it and he was like, wow, yeah, that's really a pretty big fight. (laughs) You know, (laughs) to chew. that's a lot. Uh, And I had not served the homeless really at all. So I just took it upon myself to go down and serve at the shelter in Visalia. Took my kids with me and served some meals down there and really just, just fell in love with those guys and really my heart opened toward them. But I also, um, it wasn't long after that happened that I was asked to be on a board of a local nonprofit that was serving the homeless. And immediately I just started kind of digging into the crisis and I right out of the gate, I was like, I just don't really like the way these people, these people our friends that are living on the streets were being talked about and treated. It felt very other, mm-hmm. it felt very us and them. And I, that stuck out to me right away. And so it became a passion of mine. Well, say, say, let me interrupt you and say more about that. How, how do you look at, at homeless, the homeless people that you're dealing with? Well, I used to look at them, as, at, at them as people who were not like me. And see, that's really easy to do when we don't lean in. I love Brene Brown. Is, I follow her closely and I love her so much. Yeah. Uh, you know who I'm talking about. I mean, I don't know if your listeners know Brene, but she's written a couple really amazing books about uh, daring greatly and about vulnerability and, creativity and all kinds of cool stuff, shame and leadership. And um, she says, you know, people are hard to hate close up, lean in. And so when I started leaning in and listening to these people's stories, my friends' stories, I realized they're not that different than me. They might've been one lifestyle choice away. I might be like one lifestyle choice away from them in, in terms of how they ended up in the situation they're in. And so when you start hearing those stories from people, you start realizing that they're just people just like you. I didn't though, prior to starting my work on the streets. And, um, but once I did, I realized, okay, all right, these are not them. Hmm. None of them, you know, and, and two, that mindset that, that there's not a person that we've ever laid eyes on that God loves any less than he loves us really started to shake me down. It's like, yeah, there's a pervasive 
you know, belief system, I believe, in the United States, especially especially in Christ American Christianity that believes that um, the more success you have by American standards, the more power, the more visibility you have, the more important you are. And somehow we start believing that God thinks that too. And um, this work has shaken that out of me. Hmm. Yeah. So we're talking to Adrienne Hillman. She's the founder of Salt and Light Works in Tulare, Cal uh, Tulare California, um, where she is coming up with some unique ways of, of ministering to, to the homeless. And so you were telling us here, you're, you're on this board. You didn't like how they were talking about the people. And, and so that began to move you toward doing something different. I'm taking it. Yeah. And it wasn't even just the board. It was about society in general. I, you know, I started, you know, my ears started perking up when I was hearing news stories about the homeless or I was reading stories about the homeless and it just, the tone really started to grate on me. And so, um, I just kind of started digging in. I thought, you know, this is a population of people I need to know better. If I'm going to serve people, I need to know them. And I think that othering was happening because I was realizing that a lot of the folks who were, um, sitting on boards or, or even in leadership and some of these nonprofits that serve the homeless population don't really know any homeless people personally and hadn't gotten a chance to, they'd only dealt with them transactionally. They had not dealt with people relationally. And so I just started digging, you know, I started, you know, kind of praying about it and asking God to kind of send things my way and start digging into articles and, and this crisis. And it wasn't long before I was listening to a podcast uh, with Jen Hatmaker and she, uh, a Christian blogger, uh, author, speaker, and she had had a gentleman named Alan Graham on her podcast. He was promoting his new book, Welcome Homeless. And she suggested that anyone that was, you know, working in this realm should know Alan and should know what he was doing. And so I dug into his work. And so he had had a 20-year ministry on the streets of Austin, a food truck ministry, where they were going out to the streets and feeding people. And it really wasn't at all about the peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. It was all about creating relationship with the folks they were meeting on the streets. And through that relationship, they learned that the profound catastrophic loss of family really was the catalyst for most folks being on the streets. And so I started learning kind of at the feet of Alan Graham. And Alan um, is, the, is the gentleman who founded um, Community First Village in Austin, the village that we are actually now replicating. And so I started digging in there, and the rest is history. Wow. And uh, so it seems to me, uh, and I think this on a lot of things when we talk about immigration, um, drugs, a lot of the issues in culture, it, it feels to me like if our, if our heart would shift to a place where I say, okay, God, even if this cost me, I want us to have a solution that, that is really around caring about people, that, that then we would start to find solutions. And, and I guess homelessness feels that way to me. Too. It's almost like we need a heart shift or a mindset shift as a culture before we can really solve the issue. Would you agree with that? 100% agree. And it makes me laugh that you use the word heart, the words heart shift, because so several years ago when I discovered Alan and his, he was promoting his book, I wrote right to him. I wrote to him on Facebook. <laughs> I said, before I even had ever gone out to Texas, I said, can you come to Tulare? Because I think we have a heart problem and mm. I think we need a heart shift. I like it. Community. And you know what he said? I would love to come out there, but I want you to come to Austin first. 
And I did. And then last year, Alan actually came and helped, came and helped us launch uh, our nonprofit. And he, he did need to come and people did need to hear him and they loved him. And it was amazing what the work that he did here. But when you said heart shift is like, that is the terminology I've been using for years. And because I believe that's what it takes. And so, you know, I, when I say go upstream, you know, you talk about that you you hear that illustration of like people don't know why there's no there there are no more fish in the stream, and it's like, oh, it must be because of whatever's happening right in front of us. It's like, no, let's go upstream and see what's actually happening up there. And I think that's the whole catastrophic loss of family conversation. And I think um, it's also about trauma, you know, and those social ills we're talking about. We are not looking at people's trauma. We are just saying, you're an addict, we need to enforce that out of you. Or you're mentally ill, we need to institutionalize you or get you your meds. But that is not a relational model, which is why I believe the government model for addressing homelessness in the United States is flat not working. And that is because we are plucking people out of their relationships that they have forged, whether they're healthy or not. But in those encampments, like the one you and Ashley walked through, we are governmentally plucking people out of those those relationships and putting them into solitary confinement in a government you know housing situation and saying hey we will send your social worker we will send people in a couple weeks you know good luck you have shelter now that misses the entire relationship right it, it cuts out community completely and it's why it's not working. So, I mean, earlier in the conversation, you asked me why you thought that there was an uptick in homelessness. And I would say that's part of the problem. Mm. The American government way of addressing this issue is just, it, it misses the relationship. It misses the human to human, heart to heart, um, tra- you know, the um, situation, relationship right there happening. It, it cuts that part out. And I personally believe that's the secret sauce. And I also believe that that is inspired by the love and tenets of Jesus Christ. Mm. Me, you know, the, the love of God. Um, we are able to create that loving relationship with people, you know, that are difficult to love sometimes, you know? Yeah. People are not always easy to love. People who are addicted are not always easy to love. So it requires an anchoring of faith that the government, you know, doesn't have. And I'm not saying, hey, we need Jesus back in the classroom. I'm not even starting that discussion. That's not even where I'm going with it. I'm just saying that a government model cannot infuse that kind of loving compassion in my in my mind. Yeah. And and, and I think and, and certainly I don't want to curse any anybody who's faith based ministry in this area. God bless them. But oh, some no, you're faith based too. Right, you're right. Faith in I guess what I see some though, you know, even talking about this relationship, like we tell these homeless people to get help, to get food, you have to come to our facility. You're going to have to go to a church service. You, you, you can't bring your pet. You know, that, that to me, that's a big one. Um, so you're talking about relationship. And, and, and yes, and it, it kind of comes under the, with the agenda that you're going to have to, to be proselytized by us. And I think, I think what I hear you saying is our faith should drive us to help people, not drive us to try to convert people to be able to give them help. Correct. We are, in my belief system, in the way that we are handling it at Salt and Light, we are absolutely faith-inspired. This is, uh, you know, the essence of our um, organization is based on the love of Jesus Christ, right? Okay. And we are the hands and feet of Christ. And I do not believe that we create healing, bring people to Christ by beating them over the head with the Bible, by saying to them, um, we will help you if... 
I just don't think that's the way Jesus loved people. That's not, that's my belief. He did not love them by saying, I will love you if he said, I will love you. And, and so, um, I think that, um, you know, requiring there to be some sort of, um, uh, condition on that help is a miss, especially when you're dealing with people who are vulnerable, people who need extra help. Um, you know, I really think it's important to meet people where they are. And so um, I think it's really dangerous to say to somebody, uh, if you go get help, if you get clean, P.S., you can go get clean. And I also, you have to stay on the streets until you get clean. So you're going to actually be re-traumatizing yourself while you're trying to get clean. And the reason you're probably addicted is because you're traumatized. So keep traumatizing yourself and good luck on getting clean. And also you don't have, you know, shelter, food, you know, protection. There's a nervous system issue because you're not sleeping. I mean, right. It just, yeah. it's, it's nonsensical. And then to add on, Hey, and by the way, you also have to be praying. And if you're not, you know, that's also, you know, one of our requirements. Hey, what about people who have been um, abused with church? What about church trauma? Mm -hmm. I mean, I just, think, I just think that whole churching people to help them is so dangerous and we are just not doing that. And so when people say, well, then you're not faith-based, like, no, I'm absolutely faith-based. Are you kidding me? That's exactly what drives me is, is to love people the way I believe Jesus loved them. Yeah. That, yeah. That's hard. It's harder to love Jesus. It's harder to love people the way Jesus loved them than it is to love them the way us Americans have decided to do it. You know, with conditions. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, everybody. This is Paul. Let me take a quick break here from our great discussion with Adrian Hillman to tell you about a project that I have going on right now. You, of course, probably know by now that I've written a novel called Joseph Comes to Town When the Religious Right Goes Religiously Wrong. And now it's available in audio. You can hear the religious right go religiously wrong. And this is one of the pet projects of my life. It's what's brought me here. And it's one of my favorite things I've ever done. I want you to enjoy this audiobook series as well. Here's how you do it. Go to my website, npepodcast.com. That's nonpartisan evangelical, npepodcast.com. Click on that Patreon button in the upper right-hand corner, and you can join our NPE Patreon community. It's only $5.99 a month. At the start, you can go higher levels, and that's sort of how we underwrite what we're doing here at the Nonpartisan Evangelical, so your help would be so appreciated. And when you do that, you get access to the Joseph the Novel audiobook series. We're sort of doing it in segments. The first three segments are out, which have taken us up to chapter 16. And you don't only get to listen to the book, which is amazing and one of my favorite projects I've ever done, but also I do exclusive commentaries. Are these real people? Where did these stories come from? What do they mean to me? I'll share all of that with our NPE community and with them only. You get it right there on our Patreon page. This is the project of my life. I love it so much, and I want you to love it too. So go to my website, nppodcast.com. If you click on the Joseph the Novel tab, you can find out more about my book. You can find out how to buy it in paperback or Kindle version. And if you click on the Patreon button in the upper right-hand corner of the page, you can find out how to join our NPE community and get all kinds of fun stuff. My wife and I do exclusive podcasts that are only for our Patreon audience and to talk to you. So I hope you'll join it and I hope you'll love this project of my audiobook as much as I love bringing it to you. NPEpodcast.com. That's the website. Check out all the cool stuff we have there for you to know that God is not mad at you and he's not mad at the world either. In fact, 
there's a lot of hope for what's to come. Check it out, npepodcast.com. Now back to Adrian Hillman and our podcast here on the Nonpartisan Evangelical. Uh, you know, what's, what's gripping me right now as I'm hearing this and thinking about it is, is how scary it must be to uh, you know, think about that first night on the street of sleeping without a house. Uh, some sleep in cars, but to not have a car, I mean, you must have heard stories. It must be terrifying. I to- told you I've done it, right? Oh, no. Tell me. Tell yeah. you, you slept outside? Yeah, on purpose. So we, we went with Alan Graham last Palm Sunday, my husband and I, and uh, four or five other folks from around the country. We went on what's called a street retreat in Austin, Texas. And the population on the streets in Austin, Texas is much more like the, the population on the streets in, in Fresno pretty close to like downtown Fresno. Okay. A little heavier. Um, And we spent two nights on the streets. Wow. Yeah. And I, that actually shifted me all the way. I mean, it was the absolute shift that I needed to kind of get me out of my privilege and comfort and all the things I was really trying to hold on to and do this work. Um, And I'm not saying I don't have comfort and privilege. I still, I, I, I do, but I, um, I did not have an understanding of the trauma of life on the streets until I did it. And I was not attacked. I was not assaulted. However, our first night on the street, uh, we had, we found cardboard and we had to go find a place that was safe that we found safe. And we ended up finding a spot on the UT Austin campus. Sorry, UT Austin. I heard more of that, but uh, right next to the admissions office underneath a bench. And so we, you know, we put our sleeping bags down and we slept there and I was, you know, I kept, I slept with one eye open yeah. and I was nervous all night because, and for me, the terror was waking up to someone standing above me and either going to assault me or yell at me and tell me to leave or arrest me. Now I still had the comforts though of saying, Hey, this is a simulation. We are just, we are on a street retreat. We are not actually homeless. And I, and we know it's really more, even more sad about that. And I probably then would have gotten away with it. How yeah. is that? Right. Yeah. Right. Um, so, and while we were walking around the streets, we could walk into to Starbucks if we wanted to. We were allowed to. We weren't supposed to bring money with us, which I didn't. But um, we, I could walk into Starbucks no problem because I didn't, you know, quote, look homeless. But, which I, again, still unfair. So, but regardless, what that did to my nervous system two nights on the streets, it took me like a week to reset. Like from that, I was just anxious and nervous and I could feel I'm pretty in touch with my body in the way that I, you know, the mind body connection, I'm a, a coach by trade and I you know, really learned to listen to, to my body. So, um, and I would say my husband would, would agree that he's not as in touch with his body per se. And he was like, Whoa, this messed me up. Right. And it was just for us, just the terror of not sleeping well, and, you know, my husband likes to call it rotisserie sleeping, right? Trying to roll over and get comfortable because you're sleeping on the concrete. And then I think, so it, it's caused me to think about people doing that for months and years on end, what that would do to mm. your body and your nervous system, especially if you're already struggling with mental illness, you're already struggling with addiction. I mean, I'm just going to tell you right now, I, I'm sure that I would be wanting to drink if I was living on the street. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> judge these folks this is real pain that people are living in i mean i have these a couple friends of mine that were on this street retreat with us they're from tulsa and they have an outreach ministry there called uh, city lights and they're just awesome people and this winter they actually had to i it's hard for me to even say this they had to chisel 
one of their friends out of their sleeping bag because she had frozen to the ground. Oh, wow. Right. When I think about being that miserable and then I think about having access to fireball or wine or whatever, a fifth of something or a hit on the streets that someone's offered me because uh, homeless folks get offered drugs constantly. Um, I'm thinking I probably would take it. I mean, I'd like to say I wouldn't, but boy, yeah. it's pretty painful. How else are you going to deal with it? Right. Right. Wow. Interesting, huh? When you think about it that way, it really shifts the way you think about people living on the streets. So I, a couple of really quick notes. I, I, when I was leading a church, I talked to one of the homeless ministries here in town and said, hey, you know, can we bring people down for Thanksgiving and, you know, all the usual church stuff that I thought we did to be able to tick that box that we're taking care of the poor. And, and I remember him telling me, do not come on Thanksgiving. Do not come, come. The other 364 days of the year, we need help. Not on Thanksgiving, which I thought was interesting. And I've I've been told that we should not give money to panhandlers because that's actually holding them from from the help. So I'd love to get your your insight on that, and <laughs> and and kind of tie that with because I, I do think most people want to help. They, I think. I do think we need a heart shift, but at the same time, I think people want to help. So you said if you see a guy with a shopping cart, stop and ask if you need something. So if I see somebody with a shopping cart tomorrow and I do stop because I do care, what should I tell him to do or what do I do for him? Okay. Well, so there's a couple, que there's several questions in there. I guess I piled a lot of stuff on there. Sorry about that. That's okay. I'm going to answer them all, but I'm going to tell, I'm going to preface it with that some of my answers are not popular. But but I, I but I stand by them because I've witnessed um, true leaders like Alan in action, um, and I've kind of learned at his feet about uh, giving to panhandlers. So there's some discussion around that. But talking to the guy on the street that's pushing a cart, um, I think asking right away what he actually needs is important. Um, and if you can provide that, then awesome. What's really problematic in the Central Valley? with the folks that we're addressing on the streets and it is a heartbreaker every time it happens is that we have no place to send them. Like in Tulare, I mean, we just lighthouse rescue mission just recently opened uh, a small men's shelter and it's helping. But I mean, it, what's heartbreaking about doing some of this work is that there's no place you know, to send our folks. That's hard. That wow. makes that transaction really difficult. So if the, if the guy play, says I need a place to stay, Right. I mean, you can make that choice. You, I don't know if you would, you would, would you recommend somebody say, come stay at my house? Um, I think that's a Holy Spirit discussion. Okay. Like, that's a place where the Holy Spirit kind of has to guide you and you got to be in tune with, with that. Um, I also, I put people up in hotels I and mean, there, there's, a, there are a lot of answers to that. I think it's case by case. However, what I find that people want the most, those folks, I mean, food, if they're hungry, for sure. Water, water's a biggie. Um, bus tickets, bus passes, candy, but most of all, they want you to listen to their story. Yeah, someone to talk to. They want someone to look them in the eye. So there's a guy that's always at Costco. He's always flying a sign at Costco, and I've given him money lots of times. I just kind of try to let this Holy Spirit guide me in that way. But sometimes in a really big hurry, and I and I put both hands up like, hey, I always let them know I see them because one of the things that we take for granted as citizens that aren't experiencing homelessness. Um, is that we get to look people in the eye every day, all the time. We go to Starbucks and the lady takes our order and she looks us in the eye and we look her in the eye and we get we have that luxury. Um, our folks living on the streets don't have that luxury. 
there are many days they go where people won't look in the eye. In fact, the opposite, they're, you know, spit on, shunned, you know, flipped off, not looked at. A lot of the averting of gazing of gazes happens at the corners because people are like, well, I don't have money to give or I don't want to give it. So I'm not going to look at them. Sometimes just saying, I'm with you. You know, I, you're loved. I love you. God loves you. Sometimes that's enough, right? Mm -hmm. So it's just a matter of, it's seeing people because our, our, the, the greatest need we have as human beings is to be seen, fully seen and fully known. Right. And so to feel erased and marginalized, um, pushed all the way to the furthest margins, I think is the most dehumanizing thing we can do to another person. And I think it's, the antithesis, it's, the, it's not what Jesus Christ taught. It's, yeah. the, it's the absolute opposite. He, he welcomed the stranger, he, the prostitute, the beggar. He looked people in the eye. I mean, I, I believe that that is how Jesus did it. Sometimes he didn't have bread to give them, but he had love to give them. Yeah. So I really feel like that guides me a lot. Um, yeah, and I think, and he touched lepers. You know, I think, you know, lepers were, were, you talk about social distancing. They were the ultimate social distancing, and and he touched them. And I think so. I think that really goes to your point of just interacting is a big thing. Yeah, and I hug my people. I mean, you will see me when I'm doing outreach work or I'm stopping talking to people. You'll see me hugging on my people. I do, and I don't care. It doesn't you know? I t- I've talked uh, to Alan about that a lot because he's been working on the streets for twenty years. I'm like, have you ever caught anything? Have you ever been assaulted? He's like, no, never. No. And I'm, I, you know, no. And I'm just going to love people and I'm just going to let God do the rest. And I'm like, pretty faithful. So I, I kind of followed that lead. Um, I've just loved people. And I let, I really try to let the Holy spirit guide me now about paying or, or giving money to panhandlers. Okay. I'm going to tell you that a lot of leaders in this field will tell you, don't give money to folks on the streets. And I'm going to say that I don't agree with that. And for lots of reasons, um, if that two or three bucks buys them a fifth or a little tiny travel bottle of vodka, you know, they get to choose what they want to do with their money. No one tells me how to spend mine. And I appreciate that. Um, and you, I mean, I, d- I don't believe I'm mentally ill, but you know, that might be questionable. <laughs> but you hear what I'm saying? And I just feel like um, we, we strip people of their dignity by deciding for them what, what they get to spend their money on. And, in America, we have, you know, if you go to Mexico, what happens when you get off the plane or off the cruise ship? What's the first thing that happens? Somebody tries to sell you something. Mm-hmm. That they've made or they're, yeah. or they're repackaging and selling or a basket or a bracelet. Uh, it used to be, uh, uh, Alan talks about this a lot. They used to be selling velvet Elvises, you know, um, and little baskets and bottles of water and newspapers on the street corners. And we just, we don't allow that anymore. Here and there, you'll see a fruit stand or you'll see... Um, you know, a flower salesperson, but I just saw a lady the other day get shut down on the corner of Acres and some road in Visalia. I don't remember what the cross street was, but she got, she got shut down. I saw them t- telling her to get lost because she didn't have a permit in America. It's all about that. And so we've taken away people's ability to create income for themselves on the streets in that way. And so now they're flying signs and we don't want them to do that either. However, many of these folks are not able to get a job it's really difficult to hold a job and sleep rotisserie style like i did in austin that i was talking about that's a pretty tough it was a pretty tough day the next day and i'll tell you something i walked around town the rest of the day because that's what you do and you're not allowed to just sit around and loiter because you'll be moved so when you walk around for 10 hours straight i'm gonna tell you something it's tiring 
It's really tiring. Yeah. It's really tiring to not sleep at night. It's really tiring to walk around and not be able to have a place to sit without getting shooed away. So I just think I, I just have a different kind of way of looking at it. I try to provide what I can for somebody. If I can, that if I can do something better than cash. I, I carry candy with me a lot. I carry waters with me a lot. Um, I don't carry bus tickets around here as often because there's not, there's not a, as high demand here. When I'm in Austin, I carry bus tickets with me. Um, but if I've got a couple bucks, I don't really miss it. And I just feel like they're, I don't feel like them getting a, a McDonald's cheeseburger or a little bottle of booze is going to keep them on the streets longer. So I think of it more as palliative relief. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. And I'm kind of mad because I, you know, my stance was always like, Hey, whatever they do with the money is up to them. My reward is, is my heart being pure. So I'm going to, I'm going to go back to that. And, and, and again, I, I'm not great at this. I, I honestly, I'm as much as anybody I'm in a hurry. I'm not going to stop for that homeless guy. He's, he might be scamming me. She might be scamming me. You know, all of those things. That's my honest, honest truth here. Well, listen, it's, I've had to strengthen that muscle. Okay. I mean, this is, I am not mother Teresa. Um, Much as I would love to be that selfless. I'm not, but in those moments, if I don't have cash in my wallet, I don't have cash in my wallet. What am I going to do? Right. But if I have a gift card, you better believe I'm going to give it to him. If I, you know, I saw Alan one time give somebody five euros. He told him, go down the bank and get it, get it. To, he goes, man, those guys love that. They love being able to go on a bank and say, can you change a dollar fifty? So, I mean, if I have something to give, but if, if I have nothing else, I at least give them love. And I, it's just been a muscle I've had to strengthen. It's not been easy for me. Um, but it, it, it's, it's back to, you know, living a life that's, you know, kind of Christ-filled is a life full of interruptions. Yeah. So that slowing down is just something I've tried to do, but I'm telling you, it has taken work. So I don't, it's, it's, it's not, I, I realize that it's hard. And when I'm feeling conflicted, like this feels not right. Um, I let the Holy spirit guide me that way. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I don't do anything. I mean, there, there's a, I never withhold love from people. I really, I shouldn't say never. I'm not, I try not to withhold love from people, but there are times where I'm like, I'm not giving that dude money. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, I preface with that I'm not great at this because I did have an experience recently. I was down in the Tower District of Fresno, and and so I, I was at a formal event. So I'm in a suit and tie, actually walking walking down the street, and and a you know a homeless gentleman stopped me, and he was he'd obviously been on the street for a while, and he was not greatly pre- preventable or presentable, and and stops me. And, and again, it may be Holy Spirit. I don't know why, because I'm not very, like I said, I'm not great at this. Pretty good at ignoring it sometimes. But I did stop. And and the thing is, I turned and and faced him. And and he, you know, he he was like, sir, can I ask you a question? And I stopped and turned and faced him. And when I turned to face him, he started crying. And he said, thank you for stopping. And he said, can I, can I give you a hug? <laughs> And I'm in my suit and tie and I, you know, for whatever reason, I'm like, absolutely. And, and it just, that, you know, it melted my heart and he could have asked me for anything at that point. You know? that's what I'm and that's the yeah. life changing stuff that's happened to yeah. me when I just opened my arms. Um, that Alan calls that um, aroma, the bouquet of Christ. <laughs> This guy started telling me a story about he needed to get a, a prescription at, at Walgreens. And so I went across to the ATM and I got him 40 bucks. And he's like, come with me to Walgreens. I'll show you that. And, and I'm like, man, I, 
I said, I don't have to walk to Walgreens with you, but just, and so I just, I did, I just had him tell me the story. And so you're, I say that, I'd say you're so right. It meant everything to him to have somebody who stopped and I, just, I stopped and turned to him. Yeah. Uh, I, I think turning my body towards him meant everything that day. So I think the 40 bucks was secondary. Yeah. And 40 is a bunch. Good for you. Wow. <laughs> uh, and, and the thing is, it, 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 you're right. It, I, there are times I look at my wallet and all I've got is a 20. And it's like, well, you know what? This guy needs it. And he needs it more than I do. And I'm not going to miss it. How many things do we spend five bucks on? Yeah. How many do you spend 20 bucks on? I mean, I had my kid, you know, speaking of this, you know, social distancing thing. I had one of my kids yesterday send me a text for a 29 <laughs> game. And I go, you know what? You can donate that to Salt and Light Works. We're looking for $25 a month donors. Oh, he got really mad. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, because 20, 29 bucks, think about what that would mean to my friend Robin, who's living behind Target. Yeah. You know, he loves coffee from Starbucks and they'll give it to him for free. And then he can buy a sandwich with five bucks or whatever else. You know, it's when I think about the need and then I think about what we've got as Americans, I'm like, I just, I can't, I can't square it with not um, doing something. I can't. So I do have this book by Alan Graham that you gave me and I've been perusing through it. It's called Welcome Homeless, but then it has the less scratched out. So it's, 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 I don't know if the book is called Welcome Home or Welcome Homeless. But. Welcome Homeless, but it's supposed to be yeah, play on words of kind of be a welcome home. Is there anything else you want to tell us uh, for mostly our evangelical audience or former evangelical audience uh, about, uh, about this issue? Um, you know, I think, I think we talked a lot about relationship, but I do believe that, you know, Jesus Christ was a, was a relationship, um, human and he taught us that that's how we live. He wasn't transactional. And I think that's how we approach this crisis and, and, and the other social ills that we are, are facing as well. But I, I think it completely applies here and that relationship equals community when you look at it from a larger scale. And so um, I would apply that lens when you're dealing with folks that are sometimes nuisances. I understand that folks can be hard to handle when they are struggling um, but if we have an understanding of their struggle, it really does help them to be compassionate. Yeah. And I'm with you. I think the heart shift, if we would just say, Hey, let's, let's start with, we have a heart for these people at human be as human beings. I understand it's tough if they're in front of your business door. Yeah. I, I get it. But so how do we compassionately start to work that through? I think, I think wisdom from heaven can come when we start to have that heart. I think so too. And really talking to people is free. And when I hear people say they're really mad at people that are in the front of their businesses, I always think if you have a relationship with them, they are going to protect your business and move out of the way. And if you let them know that they are being problematic in my, in the experience I have had, those folks become allies, not enemies, but it requires us to step forward in faith and love to create that relationship. Well, Adrian, thank you for the work that you're doing and keep uh, sort of shining the light and, uh, and being the salt out there for us and, and helping us kind of know how to navigate this well. Ah, oh, thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me on. This was so fun. Cool. Subject. We'll do it again. Subject.